all those who have come with a desire to know more of you, to know more of your word, and to honor you in the way that we interact and come alongside others. And so, Father, we pray in this hour as we consider the wonderful gift of the church, Father, that we would have even a deeper conviction of the necessity, the value, our calling as part of it, to see Christ as our head exalted in every aspect and in every member. And so, Father, we Pray that by your spirit, the great counselor, you administer to us now. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. All right. Well, as you can see, the focus for this hour is the church as the context of growth and change. And so I'm going to put out an agree, disagree question slash statement for you to ponder and interact with um, that I hope will stir us up to where I'd like to go in this hour. And so... The question statement is this, the church is the primary context for growth and change. Would you agree or disagree? The context, the primary context for growth and change is the local church. What's that? One means of grace. Okay. But is it in God's design to be the primary means? I'm going to make y'all think a little bit. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. So the family first. Okay. And we see the calling there. Ephesians 6, 4. Fathers, bring for children, discipline, instruction of the Lord. Okay. So we're not to forsake the assembling of believers. It's a calling. It's an expectation. It's a command that God's people would want to be a part of his church. Okay. Yeah. And so even with the family, which I agree with that, um, but also, though, is the family not equipped by the church and being the family that God designed them to be? And so every family, as Jonathan Edwards says, ought to be, as it were, a little church. Right. But as a part of and as a reflection of of the larger church. And so y'all can keep thinking on that, dwelling on that. I I trust it will be very helpful and beneficial. And I'm going to explain a little bit of this as we go. Um, But the the primary place I want to go with this is in our counseling ministry. A lot of times as we think about counseling, there's somebody sitting across our desk perhaps, or if it's more informal at a coffee shop or whatever it may be. But how often are we thinking about that person's long-term Spiritual vitality, growth, maturity, not just with the time we have with them, but how can we better get them connected in the context of the local church with other believers to continue helping them mature? And then also at some point being able to step in and disciple, counsel others. Okay, so really overall focus of this is to stir us up in our counseling ministry to think beyond that initial maybe formal meeting in the counseling room to what should really be incorporated, I would think, oftentimes even into our homework as including the church and connection to the church in very meaningful ways in the context of the homework that we give. Okay, so we'll unpack that as we go. So considerations, the church is a primary context for growth and change. I think we see this in part in Ephesians chapter 4. Verses 11 through uh, 16, right? It's by the Holy Spirit that individuals, in this case pastors, given gifts for what purpose? For equipping the saints for the work of the ministry. And as you follow through that passage, what is that ministry? 
Yeah, building others up that we would grow up in every way into Christ who is the head, keeping each other from being tossed to and fro. This is all what takes place in the context of the church and those that God has raised up, ordained to to be the head um, at the heads of the local church, pastors, uh, under shepherds of the great shepherd himself. And so that's a, a text there and something that has really convicted me and encouraged me uh, over the years now as I've been studying and, and going through particular passages, verses that I used to just primarily make application for myself, right? All those you passages in scriptures. And as I began to notice, either those particular verbs, callings, commands, the you was oftentimes plural, right? So again, the Texas Standard Version, it would be y'all. Right. It's not just you talking specifically to me, but you and the church. This is something y'all do together. You grow and change. You become like Christ together. So Paul's calling in what? Colossians 1:28. him, Christ, we proclaim warning who everyone admonishing everyone for what purpose that you may present everyone mature in Christ. And so this is a, a group effort, so to speak, in the context of the local church. This is what we do together. So, yeah, it may start in counseling intensively, uh, but there's a sense in which oftentimes it's very appropriate and very beneficial to involve others in that process. And so another resource, if you want a good resource to help you think even more deeply on this, Wayne Mack in his book, Life in the Father's House, it's by Wayne Mack and Dave Suavely excellent book on the church what it is why it matters how we should be a part of it as prescribed in the scriptures and so that's kind of what's behind um, this talk so that said what are the implications then of this truth the church is i would argue the primary place in which we grow and change um, what are the implications then uh, upon our counseling ministry and so Oftentimes, increasingly so in my counseling, formally, I'm getting more appropriate people involved sooner in the process. And I've seen God bless that and have seen a lot of growth, not just more in the short term, but also in the long term as I work with others and surround them with appropriate others to help them continue to look to Christ, to grow in Christ, to be encouraged, to be accountable, to serve all those different things. The fruit of that has been has been beautiful to behold. And so that's part of where we want to go again this morning. So uh, what makes growth and change necessary? Um it's God's calling, right? He doesn't call us to be stagnant. He calls us to grow up in some ways, grow up in every way into Christ. And so that said, let, let's bring this home. I'll connect this to a counseling scenario um, not too far back. If he calls us to grow and change, that change is enabled through a saving relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, and so let me just put out, I guess, two things here. So one, in today's focus, we're going to look more at how do people grow and change. And often this is going to be uh, in the context of, of sin struggles, right, in the pursuit of holiness. And so that's going to be more of the focus today. But also as a church, we need to learn how, and I think we do really need to learn how, because I don't think we do it well, how to come alongside those who are suffering, as we're counseling those who are suffering, how do we love them well? In so our church, we've had a lot of tragedy uh, recently, several deaths, tragic deaths. Um, and it's been beautiful to watch the church 
come alongside him. This has really been driven home and just seeing the beauty of Christ's love manifested. And so that's where we're going in the next weekend, how to serve the suffering in the context of the church. But today it's how do we grow in holiness in the context of the church. And so... Um, as we think through this, let me take us to an important passage, a gospel response. Romans 12, 1 and 2, Paul, of course, in Romans 1 through 11, has just beautifully laid out the gospel, right? The, the indicatives, the wonderful truths of the gospel. And then chapters 12 through 16 are those imperatives. How then do we respond, live in light of the gospel? And so in Romans 12, 1 and 2, Paul writes, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, talking about the church, by the mercies of God to present your bodies, you all plural together, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Okay, why would Paul have to give a command after the glorious gospel's been presented of not being conformed to the pattern of this world. Yeah, because we certainly were totally before Christ and that pressure is still there, right? How much pressure do we have of someone today to conform as a church to compromise to the new and better values of the culture, right? The pressure is immense and it's only going to probably increase. And yet gospel response don't conform to that. Right, Be renewed by our minds, remember the truths of the gospel, and live according to that despite and in contrast to the world and its pressures. And so concerning this natural tendency to be conformed to the world, uh, there's a great book, uh, Brian Hedges. It's called License to Kill. Right, And this is a book you want to give to your teenagers, by the way. License to Kill. Subtitle, uh, A Field Manual for the Mortification of Sin. And it really is a, a teenage level read, so I got it. It was a good book. I understood it. Uh, but in this book, uh, he gave a, a story of this boy who had a, um, a python who had raised this, this snake from a, a young age, and it was his pet. It grew up with him. And then, of course, you kind of know where this is going uh, here's the, the rest of the story. As a friend's over one day, the story of Corey Brime, uh, this nine foot long, as a boa constrictor, um, draped it, as he had it draped around his shoulder, playing with his pet. The story goes, to the horror of a watching friend, the reptile's large lumbering coils began to tighten around its owner like a noose. Slowly, irresistibly, the great snake squeezed Corey's life away. His air supply was cut off, his face turned red, and he passed out. Unable to remove the snake by uh, herself, Corey's friend called for emergency help. But several hours later, Corey died in the local hospital. And so what Hedges is doing here is he's illustrating the nature of sin, right? Sin may come at us to deceive us, making us think that it's cute and, and cuddly and it's something that we can wrap ourselves up in, uh, and, and perceive even as being basically harmless. But the true nature of sin is to deceive and to destroy, right? To kill. And so with that reality in mind, the, the Puritan John Owen, you've I'm sure heard this before. Uh, he says, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Okay. And so as a church, we are called to holiness. We are called to put to death that which is earthly within 
Um, and so that's, which I think that verse is up here for you. Uh, Colossians 3, 5, put to death. Uh, so important. It's not, uh, I mentioned this actually, this verse in, in, in track one this morning on counseling sexual sin. It's not put into the closet for a later time or usage when nobody's around, right? It's put to death. Therefore, what is earthly within you, sexual morality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. And so if we're going to be conformed increasingly to the image of Christ, then we must continuously confront and kill that indwelling sin. And so as we seek to work with others, to counsel others, to self-counsel ourselves, a good question might be this. What is, in a sense, your pet sin? Or as we think through Hebrews 1 and 2, what is that sin that so easily entangles you? Okay? And we're all guilty, right? Whether it's anger, whether it's anxiety, whether it's lust, whether it's covetousness, um, bitterness in the heart. What, 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 and make an application, what might be the sin that you most struggle with now? And as you think through that in the context of, of this study, uh, maybe think through how could you appropriately involve others to help you honor Christ in the midst of that struggle. And so if you're married, obviously that could be a spouse, uh, it could be ladies study group, men's study group, whatever that may be is appropriate. But how do we come alongside each other with the particular sins that we struggle with? Uh, Jerry Bridges, um, I think it was called Respectable Sins, a book came out a long time ago, uh, made a list of sins that um, have become acceptable in a sense because they're just so common. And so he mentions these anxiety, Frustration, uh, discontentment, unthankfulness, pride, anger, envy, uh, sins of the tongue, or worldliness. Uh, These are things that unfortunately characterize the church to some degree, right? These are things we all struggle with to some degree. And yet the calling is to put these to death. And by the grace of God, we've been given one another to help each other do just that. So sanctification is a process. And which would become increasingly like Christ. And God prescribes this process of change, I would argue, to take place primarily in the context of the church. Okay. Now that said, as mentioned family, and that was my first argument when I started thinking through this. Because as the head of my home, I am primarily responsible for the well-being and sanctification of my family. Um, however, as I submit myself to the local church, I'm equipped, encouraged shepherd in that role to be a better father to my home and so though i'm primarily responsible for those in my family i'm also have benefited enormously from the context of the local church and helping me see through the regular proclamation of the word through accountability through encouragement through discipleship um, my own need for christ and, and continued growth and that has then blessed me in being able to be what my family needs me to be so i'm so grateful for a solid church in which that takes place. And so we're to grow up in every way into Christ who is the head. And this is, this growth and change for believers, it's not something that's that's uh, optional, right? It's something that is to be operational, ongoing, organic in the context of the local church. And so we see this clearly in Ephesians chapter 4. Go ahead and open your Bibles there. Uh, you guys are familiar, familiar with Ephesians chapter 4, your, your third level biblical counselors now, advanced track. Uh, this is a text that that uh, hopefully continues to minister to you immensely. It's one that we can minister to many uh, as well. 
with Ephesians chapter 4, often referred to as the change chapter, right? And as we're looking at all this change that takes place here in Ephesians 4, it's encouraged, it's instructed um, in the context of the local church. Paul's writing to the local church. You all, as a congregation, as a gathering, this is what is to characterize you. These are the ways um, that you are to change. These are things you're no longer to do, the things that you are to do. And so let's take a look first at the mandate of change. The mandate of change. In Ephesians 4.17, uh, Paul there writes, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. In other words, you must change. You once used to walk like the Gentiles. In fact, you were one of them, right? But that's no longer you. You were bought at a price. You're now a new creation, and you're called to honor the Lord Jesus Christ. And so you must change. And it's interesting because this word walk, which means our conduct, our lifestyle, uh, is mentioned seven times here in this one letter, right? And so our walk, our conduct, the way that we live in light of the gospel is immensely important. And so... Every aspect of the Christian life is to be progressively conformed to the image of Christ. We see in Ephesians 4.1, uh, Paul's admonishment to them, I urge you then, brothers, to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Yes, we need to be doing that individually in our workplace and wherever else, but this is also something we do in the context of the local church. We encourage each other in this. We instruct each other in this. We hold each other accountable to this. We remind each other of the gospel in light of this. And so, why change? On starting off Ephesians, uh, Paul emphasizes um, that God saves wayward sinners and it's repeated three times to make sure we get it. And also to the praise of the glory of, of the, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in verses 6, 12, and 14, we're called to grow and change to the praise of his glory. Okay, ultimately it's not about us. Ultimately it's about the one who's created us for his glory and who enables us to live for his glory and that he would get glory out of us becoming more and more like his son. And so you all know 1 Corinthians 10.31, right? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And to do all to the glory of God means in a sense that our lives are be like a mirror that reflect back to God uh, the essence of who he is and holiness and righteousness and love and mercy and justice and all of those things. And so as we consider our own struggles with sin, as we help others who are struggling with sin, um, here, here's a good question to ask. In what ways do your attitude and your actions glorify God? And so as we come alongside one another, how do we help each other in our actions and our attitudes glorify God? Uh, Randy Patton years ago gave a statement that was, was really good as he sat down to, with people and, and, and got to know them. He didn't want to waste time. He wanted to get right to the point. How can I do you spiritual good? How can I help you grow and change? He would ask him this question or, or make this statement. If, if I were to put a phone before you and had a direct line to God and he were to ask you, what are three areas in your life in, in which you know that I'm pleased? What would you say and so you're getting their understanding of, of of how they're living in a pleasing way to the lord and the next question is if if god were to ask you what are three areas in your life that you know i want you to to grow and change what would those be so you're immediately kind of getting into their life right if they're being honest with you and you got an opportunity then to do informal or formal biblical counseling right develop a meaningful relationship over things that would please the lord and so let's consider then uh the motive to change, continue on in Ephesians 
chapter 4, verses 17 through 20, where Paul wrote in verse 17 that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. And so again, he's reminding him, uh, reminding them of who they once were, right? And so if we go back then to Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 3, he wrote, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Hey, what's Paul doing? He's reminding them of who they were. Okay, and then I think we talked about this in the last week when I was with you. Those next two words, so glorious. But God, but God, while we were spiritually dead, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. How many of us deserved such kindness and mercy we're enmity with god living unto ourselves and yet but god by the work of the spirit opens our eyes to see our sin to see christ as as savior and to cling to him but god and so paul then goes on um and in a jumping over to second corinthians uh that should be second corinthians 5 14 and 15 not two, four through five. So Second Corinthians uh, five, fourteen and fifteen. Um, what should be our motive to change? For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this: that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. And so God has changed us positionally from being at enmity with Him to being his sons and daughters, to being a part of his church, being part of the universal body of Christ, lived out in the context of the local body of Christ in in the church. And so to that end, Milton Vincent uh, concludes the following in his book, A Gospel Primer. He says, indeed, the more I embrace and experience the gospel, the more I delight in the worship of God, the more expressive my joy in him becomes and the more I yearn to glorify him in all I do, all I say and do. And so as, as we uh, consider who Christ is and then we consider our, our pet sins, those sins that so easily uh, entangle us, uh, the question then becomes, in what ways does the gospel rightly motivate and enable you to change? And so as we think about change, as we think about maybe our struggle with anger, anxiety, or whatever it is, do we think first and foremost about the gospel? Are we just thinking, stop that, right? So again, it comes back to what is the motive? And if the motive ultimately isn't the love of Christ, a right, reverent fear of the Lord, what is then motivating us? Because if the motive isn't right, even if we do the right thing for the wrong motive, is that still pleasing to the Lord? Now, the Lord looks at, at the heart. And so the motive is, is what is vital. And so as we're helping others, coming alongside each other, helping each other grow, growing up in every way into Christ who is the head, the motive needs to be the love of Christ, right? We need to point them to Christ, remind them of the gospel, the wonderful truths there. They would look to him for the ability to change. And that then brings us to the means of change. The means of change. Um, 
I'm going to take you back to, some of you may have caught this in track one, perhaps. Uh, does this look familiar to anybody? The Y diagram. This is, this is so good in, in so many different ways. Um, so one, we have the mandate to change, right? And so what is the chief in the man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever, okay? And so our calling, in a very real sense, the mandate is to glorify God. Whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That is the mandate. What is then what should motivate us to actually do that? For the love of Christ compels us, controls us. And so at the top, the chief in the man is to glorify God. What enables that? Only a saving relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. His love for us should then motivate us to love the Father, to love Christ in the way that we live. And so if we travel up um, this the, uh, the first arrow there, uh, you come to what we call a fork in the road, right? Where you've got to make a choice. And so as we're going through life, we have lots of choices. And there's only two options on the shelf. Pleasing God or pleasing self. Okay? Which is easier? Self. Yeah, right? It's, it's quite easy to do, uh, oftentimes, especially if we're alone and isolated. If we're with others encouraged to look to Christ, it's actually an easier thing to do, even when life is hard. But if we're alone, it's especially easy to live, um, to do what's easy. And yet, what's the end result of that? The way the transgressor is hard. Whatever one sows, that will he also reap. Okay? Uh, why would we do that? Because we tend to be... Feelings-oriented people. Why do we do what we do? Oftentimes it's because of what we feel like doing, right? It's easy, and it feels right sometimes, and the world is all about it, us going down the pathway of living for self. And so as we think about the three great enemies to our soul, it's Satan, who's over the world, uh, using the worldliness of the world to appeal to our flesh, Tempting us to go the easy way, which is to glorify self rather than God. Okay? So those are the three great enemies. Let's go to the other side then. How's this tie back in? Go to the other side. Is it easy or hard often to live for the Lord? Hard. Okay? What makes it easier to live to the Lord is remembering the invitation of Christ. Come to me, all you are weary, heavy laden, and I will give you Rest And the more we come to him, the more that we trust him, the more that we know his goodness, his person, his provisions, his promises, the precepts of his word, all those things in our life, the easier it is for us to then follow him and to trust him to bring glory to him. Now, while on the one side we have Satan, world, and the flesh against us, notice on the other side what God has provided as his means of grace to live a life glorifying to God is motivated by the love of Christ. We have there the church. Okay? We have the church. Who's going to ultimately overcome, Satan or the church? The church. We have then the Bible, which has truth. The Bible, the Word of God, or the world? Okay, which is better? The Bible. Uh, which is better, living by the Holy Spirit or by the flesh? Yeah, and so the significance of the church and living a life glorifying to God is that the church, one another, reminds us of the love of Christ for us, points us to him, helps us understand the word of God, live it out as we encourage each other prayerfully to submit to God, and we do so as we ask for the work of the Holy Spirit to bear forth fruit in our lives. 
This is a church-wide process, growth and change. Are we getting the point? Okay, yes. Are we individually responsible? Absolutely. But we're individually encouraged and counted, uh, stirred on, spurred up to the love and good works in the context of the church. All right, keep going here. The method of change then. And so the method of change, we kind of just hit on this as we look at the Y diagram, but going back to Ephesians 4, 22 and 24, we're to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Again, Paul's writing to the church at Ephesus. This is what y'all do together. Yes, it should represent you individually, but this is also collectively what you encourage each other in. And so putting off sin, renewing the mind, putting on Christ's likeness is, is progressive in nature. Uh, and it's, it's our responsibility calling and by God's grace is enabling. And so Andrew Davis, uh, in an excellent book called An Infinite Journey, and it's 380 pages, so it may actually seem like that as you read through, because <laughs> it's, it's a long read, but it's good. An Infinite Journey. Um, he says this, information will be useless if it doesn't result in actual growth on the part of Christians. This growth happens only by the grace of God, but it also happens with solid effort on our part. Continue to work out, not work for, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good pleasure. Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Our efforts so unwelcome in justification and impossible in glorification are very much needed in sanctification, right? And in, in sanctification, again, it's a process of what we do together in becoming like Christ. And so back to the basics, um, we need to help those we are working with understand uh, that working out one's salvation is a threefold process. And we just talked about that in those verses. But first, in verse 22, you must put off the thinking and lifestyle of the old man. And so, though the influences of sin in our life um, before coming to Christ are still, as, as Brian Hedges says, are still perhaps resident within us as the believer, they are no longer president over us. Okay, we've been freed from the power and the rule and the tyranny of sin, and yet we all still struggle with indwelling sin. And so we need to put that off, knowing that in Christ, 1 John 5, 4, we've overcome the world. Second, you must put on the thinking and lifestyle of the new man. On this, Sinclair Ferguson writes something very helpful. There is no progress in holiness unless we put away what belongs to the old lifestyle and put on what belongs to the new one simultaneously. And says we're helping counselors. It's not just don't do that anymore. Rather, this is what the righteousness of Christ looks like and what you're called to walk in. This principle grows inevitably out of our union with Christ. To attempt to do one without the other uh, leads only to failure. Putting away the old lifestyle is not the same as growing more like Christ. Okay, so it's both and. We're putting off the old, putting on the new, practically in the way that we live. And that also then involves renewing of the mind. And that's part of the process in which that's able to take place. And so if we're to bring glory to God, do all things to the glory of God, then we've got to know our minds have to be saturated with the will of God, which is found in the... Word of God. And so if we're not to conform any longer to the pattern of the world, then our minds need to be renewed by the Word of God so that we can live unto Him. And again, it's in the context of the church that we're 
encouraged on a regular basis. That's a means of grace that the Lord gives us. Deuteronomy 32, 47, uh, Moses said to, to Israel, collectively to Israel, uh, the word of God is no empty word for you, but to be your very life. Okay? To be your very life. And so we again consider um, our own struggles with sin. And as we help others, a good question then for us is this. How can you renew your mind in actions according to God's word? Uh, what are some concrete struggles that they're having? And in light of those concrete struggles, what does God say about it? What does God call us to? How does, through the church, the word, and the Holy Spirit, how are we enabled then to grow and change in light of those things? Okay, so some very concrete examples of manifestations of change. Again, still in Ephesians, the change chapter. Uh, here's a list of things that are to be changed in the context, again, of the local church. Um, what are we to put off? Falsehood, right? We're not to speak um, falsely to the members of, of the church of one another, but rather we are to speak the truth. Verses 26 and 27 are not to let uh, controlling anger or sinful anger uh, be there. Rather, we're to um, work things out in a timely biblical problem-solving manner. Verse 28, we're to put off any form of theft in its place, generosity. We're to put off all unwholesome talk. Verse 29, put on then edifying talk, what would build others up according to their need. In verses 30 through 32, um, we're to put off those things that would grieve the spirit, such as animosity. And then in verse 32, we're to put on Christ-like kindness, compassion, and forgiveness. And then as we jump into Ephesians 5, 1 through 7, we see more things to put off, which is every hint of sexual morality, coarse talking, anything that would be inappropriate for God's people. And in this place, we're to put on thanksgiving. Okay? And again, these are things that are exercised, encouraged in the context of of the church. All right, J.R. Miller, in the story of the commonplace, wrote uh, the following concerning gospel-driven transformation. He says, religion is not merely a matter of creed and profession or of church-going and public worship. So those are important. It is far more a matter of daily life. It is not how we behave on Sundays, nor the kind of creed we hold, nor the devout, devoutness of our worship. It is the way we act at home and school and business and society and our associations with others. It is vitally important that all who profess Christ shall manifest Christ's beauty in their life and character. Whoever abides, whoever says he abides in Christ ought to walk and conduct himself in the same way in which he walked and conducted himself. 1 John 2.6. And so dealing with our own sin and counseling others, important question to ask ourselves, important question to ask others, an important question to be accountable to each other with is this. Colossians 3.5, uh, that verse in view, are you labeling sins biblically and dealing with them specifically? Okay? Are you labeling sins biblically and dealing with them specifically? Are we putting to death that which is earthly within us and seeking to grow in holiness? And so having described what a transformed life looks like here in Ephesians 4, Paul then points uh, to the one alone who manifested perfection in his life, right? And so that leads us then next to the model for change, the model for change. And of course, the only perfect model for humanity is the Lord Jesus Christ himself, because he alone was without sin, Hebrews 4.15. And so if we are to change, to grow in holiness uh, we must imitate God as revealed in Jesus Christ. 
And so maybe to illustrate, and I think I've used this illustration before, can't remember if it was here or someplace else, but uh, growing up, high school years, need to make some money, so I started mowing yards. And I acquired this yard in a nice neighborhood that was super plush grass, really nice grass. And I was a little intimidated just by looking at the yard to be responsible for that. I might do something wrong and make it look bad. And the, the owner approaches me the first time I go over and says, I'm glad to have you here to mow, mow my yard. I want you to make stripes in the yard like what you see on the baseball field. I'm like, okay, I have a mower. I can push it. I don't know how to make stripes. <laughs> and so I agreed out of fear of man. He leaves. And now I've got to do this somehow. And so I remembered, and, and this is kind of funny, um, back to my brother's high school graduation. He was a salutatorian, I think. And in his speech, uh, goals in life, you know, if you want to get from point A to point B, um, you've got to look straight at it, determine where you're going, and go after it. And so I'm thinking, okay. How do I apply this? And so I looked across the yard, and there's a mailbox. I'm like, okay, maybe if I focus on that mailbox and stay completely focused on that mailbox and try to walk straight at that mailbox, maybe when I turn back, there'll be straight lines. And so I did my best to go straight across. And to my surprise, I turned around, looked, and there was a straight line going across the yard. So then all I had to do is put the wheel and the pattern of the other wheel. And by the time I was done... The Texas Rangers would have been really proud to play on that field. I mean, it it looked like something they would want. And so the point of all that is, if we want to grow towards perfection, which we're called to, we have to look to the one who is perfect. And again, as a church, what do we constantly do? We point each other to Christ. Fix your eyes upon him, the author and perfecter of our faith. So we encourage each other to look to him. And as we look to him, we become increasingly like him. First Peter 2, 21 says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. And so in mowing the yard, there was a straight line set. All I had to do after that, is be intentional keeping the will in the previous will pattern and there were straight lines. Christ has laid that track down for us. All we have to do is focus on what he's called us to be about and do. We don't have to invent it. We don't have to make it up. We just need to look to him and seek to be obedient to him in all of life. And so while the calling to follow Christ is, is individual perf, uh, personal, it's also a collective calling given to the church, which we then... For the last one, um, so the question then, how can we daily look to Christ and seek to follow his steps? The question I think you have on your handout, um, how do we do that? We do that as the members of change. And so, again, the church primary context in which God intends for us to grow and change um, I already mentioned, you know, the verb forms here. And I would encourage you to do a study on that. Um, look at all the verbs and the calling upon people we do need to personalize them but we do also need to apply them in the context of of the church and in the counseling and as you help your counselees do that um i trust you'll see a lot of fruit out of that as well uh to that end in the importance of the church augustine the the church father from before all of us were born wrote this he says you cannot have god uh, he cannot have god for his father who will not have the church for his mother Now, you could pick that apart and maybe agree or disagree, but the gist of it 
is dead on. Why would we want to have Christ and not have his people? And if God, through his son, has purchased the church unto himself, why would we not want to be with the other redeemed? And if he's called the church together to grow together in every way up into Christ who is the head, then there's almost a sense where to say, yes, I can have God, but I don't need the church. We need to seriously evaluate that. But that's our culture today, isn't it? Individual spirituality. But that's not biblical. If, if we profess God as our father, then the church really ought to be, in a sense, our mother. So what makes the church such a vital part of putting off and putting on? Um, the local church provides first biblical encouragement. Biblical encouragement. In fact, if you take the whole epistle of Ephesians, the letter that Paul writes to those at Ephesus, He's in prison. They're undergoing a whole lot of persecution. If you remember what Ephesus was like from the book of Acts, it's not, a, it's not a very welcoming place for believers, right? The one word that would summarize the book of Ephesians would be that of encouragement. Paul is writing to them as a new church to encourage them together to walk in a manner worthy of their calling. And so emphasizing God's design for the church and our encouragement, uh, Richard Baxter wrote this. He says, it is a mercy to have so near a friend to be a helper to your soul, to join you in prayer and other holy exercises, to watch over you and tell you of your sins and dangers, and to stir up in you the grace of God. And remember, remind you of the life to come and cheerfully accompany you in the ways of holiness. Right? How wonderful and beautiful is that? And so also then... The local church provides accountability for change. Now, let's face it. We all tend to be like sheep, right? We're all prone to go astray. And I think we may have talked about the analogy of sheep last time. Maybe someplace else. I don't know. But sheep. Anybody have sheep? Anybody not have sheep because they're not very bright? (laughs) Right? Sheep are, are, are pretty... Stupid, and that's to say it, right? Yeah, so looking for a place to die. In fact, I read not too long ago that if a sheep gets turned upside down, it'll actually die. You have to turn it back up. Something that it's, and it can't do it itself. I mean, they're pretty helpless, right? And we're kind of like those sheep. Uh, we need um, shepherding by the great shepherd and also accountability with each other. Uh, Proverbs 18.1 says this, whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. Okay? Lone Ranger Christian. Good thing, bad thing? Bad thing. Because we're all prone to go astray. Right? We are called to have one another. Case in point. uh, Recent counseling. A couple I was working with uh marriage is not going well in fact separated and and yeah it just wasn't looking good and in the midst of that um one of the in fact even before i agreed to meet with them because i read their pdis personal data inventories i wanted those before i met with them and it was obvious they weren't involved in a local church anymore um and so part of my counseling them was an agreement that they would allow me to help them reconnect with the solid church 
and and so they agreed. And so, unfortunately, the the church that I found closest to them, there was nobody on very short notice because it was a crisis situation. Nobody from that church was able to sit in, but I did include people from my church, in part because it's a a couple, and I wanted to always have a lady there when there's a wife, so she'll feel a little more comfortable. Uh, And so that was there. But in in the course of time, other people from this church uh, began to come in leadership and it's one of those things that I'm not going to have to meet very long with them because the church is being the church to them. And though the church may not have felt equipped to handle a crisis situation, um, I was able to get them started, help the church understand how to walk alongside them, and then let the church be the church. They don't need me. Ultimately, they need Jesus, right? They need to look to him, learn. But it's the context of the church that ought to be doing that. It's not me as a standalone biblical counselor. The, what a blessing and joy that is. But they need to be connected back to a local church. How did they get there in the first place? They isolated themselves from the local church. They weren't being stirred up. They gave in to patterns of, of sin. And, and anyways, um, it wasn't good. And so they, in essence, got stuck in a rut. Okay, they they began to live and think and do things that 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 weren't in in line with what God would call them to do. In fact, I remember in high school, I used to come down to Texas from Arkansas and call it in, in Oklahoma and pig hunt because that's what you do in Texas, right? And I remember several times we were extreme. We'd go out, it was muddy, and we got stuck. That's not my vehicle, but an example of that. When you get stuck in a rut, how hard is it to get out? Usually you don't, right? You can try as hard as you can, and usually you don't get out. You need people to come alongside and help, right? And so whether somebody hooks up to you with a rope or a chain and pulls you, or whether you get a bunch of buddies around and they put stuff on the tires and push, and eventually you wiggle your way out, you need help to get out. The church is to be that help for those who have found themselves stuck in sin, right? We can have patterns of thinking. We know we need to change, but we just can't seem to change. The church comes alongside, provides the accountability for us to be able to do that, to learn to renew our minds. So if you continue to think the same old thing, you're going to get the same old results, right? And so we need others to come along to challenge us where our thinking and and heart desires are wrong and to help us then walk in a manner worthy of our calling. And so it's been said that true accountability has four indispensable qualities. And so these are things that are vital to true biblical accountability. If somebody's really going to get help, they need to, to demonstrate one, encourage them towards these four things. Um, one is vulnerability. Uh, this means they need to, to open up to appropriate others about their struggles. Okay, they, There's a sense where uh, it's, if it's a shame issue or a suffering issue, they need to be transparent and vulnerable. Uh, Psalm 31.7 says, I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love because you have seen my affliction. You have known the distress of my soul. Okay, and obviously this is a psalmist crying out to God. But as they cry out to God, um, it's often beneficial that they would let us know their struggles so we can come alongside and cry out to God with them or help them know how to cry out to God in the midst of that. Uh, we all need right understanding uh, to know how to take the right steps, and that involves then teachability. Proverbs thirteen fourteen: the teaching of the wise is a fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares of death. And so in accountability, um, teaching is important. And again, teaching needs to take place. 
primarily in the context of the church. Yes, also in the home, also in personal Bible studies and devotions. I'm not neglecting those at all. Those should be there, right? And those could be whole separate sessions. But in the context that we're talking about today of the church. Availability. Another important aspect of accountability and the importance of that, Hebrews 3.13, but exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, why? That none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And again, in this particular counseling scenario I shared with you, that's exactly what happened. They isolated them from the church. They weren't getting the encouragement, instruction, the love of Christ from his people, and they became hardened in the deceitfulness of sin. And finally, it's important as we work with others to encourage them towards honesty. Proverbs twenty-eight thirteen: Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. And so they need to be honest with you, encourage honesty uh, in that relationship with one another. And so as members of change, then the local church provides the environment necessary for continued growth. I've shared this before because it's so good um, from a life in the father's house by Mac and Suavely. But the, the statement there, attempting to grow in Christ outside the church is like trying to learn to swim without ever getting into the pool. Right. God's design for us to learn to, to follow him, to grow and change is within the context of of the church. And so may it be that each of us, as part of Christ's church, would take to heart then the words given to us in Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as we see the day, capital D, Christ's return, drawing near. And so... In stating uh, that our hearts are perpetual idol factories, uh, John Calvin wrote this in his Institutes Concerning the Church. He said, Our weakness does not allow us to be dismissed from her school, the church, until we have been pupils all our lives. God's fatherly favor and the especial witness of spiritual life are limited to his flock. So it is always disastrous to leave the church. So important. We need each other. That's God's design. The church is a means of grace to encourage each other until Christ returns. We could talk about Pilgrim's Progress and the importance of that. As I'm reading through that verse, it always pops into my mind. John Bunyan said it would stick like burrs, and it does. It comes back. So you think of the enchanted ground where Christian and hopeful were about to get to the river of death, to the celestial city, and it's a place where they are tempted to, to just take it easy and where Satan destroys so many people because they become spiritually apathetic. And in the midst of that time, what did they do? They reminded each other of the gospel. They went back and reflected up on God's work for them, and they were, let's say, energized, but their hearts, their affections were warmed to, to press on because of the love of Christ. And likewise, we help each other do that until Christ returns. Hebrews 12, 1 through 2a. Let us also lay aside. Let who? Us, individually and collectively, lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. 
All right. And so the big takeaway from this summarized in this question, in what appropriate ways can you intentionally connect your counselees to a local church to facilitate short term and long term growth in Christ likeness? Right. And I would encourage us, even before you meet with them the first time, as you're looking over their PDI, how are you going to be able to connect them appropriately? Right. There's confidentiality issues, but you can ask for their permission and you can ask for those they could trust and open up to. But how can you think through um, and help them think through how to, as you work through whatever issue or issues primarily it is they come in for, how can you begin to connect them to appropriate others to help them to continue to grow and change? And so my experience over, I don't know, the past how many years is initially I helped them get through and I graduated them. And oftentimes I'd come back five years later to look where they're at. Not all of them were doing well. And as I look back on that, a lot of them had begun to slowly isolate themselves or begin to fall back into those patterns. Why? Because they weren't meaningfully connected to the local church. And so it's God's design that we would stay connected, encourage each other every day. Why? So we don't become hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And so as part of your counseling, I'll encourage you. Connect those you're working with. Connect with them, yes. Love them well with the word and, and whatever else is, is called upon. But connect them also to others that can walk with them until they cross the river of death and come into the celestial city and see Christ as he is. Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So if you're working with somebody who's a part of a little church, maybe new church, new believers, there's just not solid, mature believers to connect them to. And oftentimes I've found this people come to our church for biblical counseling because it's not made available. The pastor doesn't feel equipped and have time, whatever else. Um, and so one in that particular situation, I would want the pastor to come in and sit in on the counseling so that one, he's going to be equipped as I work with them. And then he knows how to continue to walk with them. So that's one option. The pastor just won't come. Um, I always try to find somebody else that the pastor would approve of. Right. And so our PDI, we right up front ask for permission to dialogue with their pastor leadership. Because if, if they're coming from another church, they're ultimately in the responsibility of that church. Right. I'm just here to, to help out, get things back on track. And then you please walk with them. And so... A couple different things, get them through maybe the difficult part of whatever their struggles are. Um, but then I might give them a game plan of how to continue to grow and change. And who are people in your church that, you know, maybe you can go through a particular book of the Bible with and, and maybe even give them a Bible study guide to go through that or a particular book like Trusting God or whatever the struggle is that they can do a Bible study with and, and develop those relationships and grow together. Uh, but then, you know, if it, there's just really not anybody there, um, yeah, it depends. If the church isn't going to love them well in the midst of the struggle, love them at all, then I'm probably going to encourage them towards a church that will. Um, again, there's a lot of questions to ask there. Um, or there's also other resources that they could continue to be um, equipped with. And it may be a situation if there's nobody else there. I may have people in my church that for a time be willing to come alongside them because 
I can't meet with everybody forever, right? <laughs> you just you can't, and you can't either. Um, and so, how do you get them through the the main struggles, get the, the maybe the crisis help that they need, and then involve others? And so, yeah, I think the main thing is have that on your radar. And I've always been surprised. There seems to always be somebody that's able to come alongside if we make it a matter of prayer and just asking around. Yeah, good. Any other questions? Yes. Yeah. So to counsel somebody that maybe is a missionary uh, or this, literally there's no church around. Yeah. And so at that point, I think we think more big picture universal church. Um, there's literally not a church there who big picture universal church can come alongside. And, and the, the beauty of it, though. I prefer not to be online, uh, but you've got that option, right? Zoom or FaceTime or whatever, Skype, whatever else is out there. You do have that option. And so, yeah, who who else can come alongside them, encourage them? Especially, you think about a missionary, if they're alone on the mission field, right? They they ought to have a team. And ideally, they should have a sending church that would support them through that. If that's not taking place to the church or an organization, then, I, you know, I would personally approach my church that somebody we could support and come alongside them and be that team for them yeah and and in that situation you know the whole church doesn't need to know initially what their struggles were but rather how can the church encouraging them in the ways that they need to continue to go forward right and so in a lot of these situations there may be confidentiality things that they just those that are taking over eventually don't need to know all the details Right. But here's the areas this person wants to grow and change. Can you help them do this in these ways? And we enable them to be able to do that. OK. All right. We got to wrap up resources up here. Uh, some of my favorites. These have all been really good in, in their own ways. I mentioned Brian Hedges License to Kill. I am working through almost completed now. Brian Hedges Christ formed in you the power of the gospel for personal change. Absolutely love it. It's now in my top five books. Uh, it is so good. I mean, you'll, you'll be stirred up towards your personal love of Christ and you'll, you'll be encouraged to honor him in all of life. And so this is a study I'm actually doing with others right now. Excellent book. Um, life in the Father's House, I mentioned that. Also very, very good. And of course, a gospel primer. That's just a good one to uh, help us think through the implications of the gospel for all of life as we look to Christ to grow and change. All right. Well, let me pray for us and it's time to wrap up. Father, we thank you that you are so kind to us that you would bring us from alienation and enmity and make us a part of your family. And by your great love, you have reconciled us to your son. And we thank you that you've also reconciled us to your people, that we can live with you, the God of peace who has brought peace, and we can live with one another. And though there is often not peace in this world, there is suffering, there is struggle with sin, you have brought alongside us one another as heirs of grace to love one another with your love. And we pray that as we minister to various people who have various struggles, that uh, you would grant us uh, the wisdom to use all the means of grace you've given us, including one another as the body of Christ. And we pray that you would help each of us and those we work with to grow up in every way into Christ who is the head, that he would receive all the glory and honor for his good work 
in bringing us salvation and one day bringing that to completion. In his name we pray. Amen.